Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles out to Hebrews chapter 4. If you're getting used to your Bibles, it's in the last 50 or 60 pages near the back. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we'd love for you to take part in this today by looking it up yourself. There's black Bibles that say NIV on the end in the seat racks near you. And you can turn to page 839 and you'll find that right there. Hebrews 4 is what we've come to today in our series, as you can see in the banners up here, called The Supremacy of Jesus, a study in Hebrews. Now let me just be real quick to say this. If you haven't already discovered this on Sundays or in your life groups as you've read it yourself, Hebrews is a tricky book. It's tricky to teach, it's tricky to understand because it comes from a completely different background and culture than most of us are used to. This is being written to Jewish Christians. That means that we've got the double whammy of learning all about the Christian life as well as having to know some background of the Jewish, Jewish history. And so we're going to try and make, bring that together today. But I want you to understand that if you find yourself going, uh, don't be surprised. I feel the same way myself at times. But I am so excited to talk to you about the message today because it's about rest. Anybody interested? I mean, I don't know if you have days where you just find yourself getting, you know, you just sigh a lot or you just get take a breath and keep going. I feel like our culture right now is on edge. Maybe it's because it's been a long winter. Maybe it's because there's uncertainty with the job market, economy. Maybe it's because we're seeing all kinds of upheaval in our world with other nations. We're wondering, where is this all going? Some of us are concerned, like, what's going to happen to our kids? What are they going to have to look forward to? There's just lots of things that make it difficult to have a sense of rest emotionally, physically, spiritually. And that's why I'm glad that chapter 4 in Hebrews is what we've come to today, because what we learn is that God says Jesus can be your rest giver. Jesus can give you a kind of rest that no one else can give you. That's the claim of chapter 4. And I want to look at it, and I want to try and understand it with you. Now, if you haven't been with us, if you're following along in the notes, here's the sentence for our series. If Jesus is supreme, then he deserves our whole life, if you're following along. If Jesus is supreme, if Jesus is, as the Bible claims, the Lord of lords, then he deserves our whole life. Not just Sunday morning, not just an occasional thought, not just an occasional nod. He deserves our whole life. He wants to be part of our whole life. He wants to be supreme over our whole life. What would that mean? And that's what we're talking about. This morning, by the way, wasn't Brian's message helpful last week? And I'm just so grateful to have teammates like Jim and Brian and Brian and Lee and others. Chuck? just to be able to do this together. But Hebrews 4, if you're following along, addresses the real danger of missing God's rest. Hebrews 4 addresses the real danger of missing God's rest. Now, what's, what's that mean? Well, I'm going to unfold that with you, but 11 times in chapter 4, depending on your translation, the word rest occurs. That means it's a pretty big theme in those 16 verses, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 today, but even back in chapter 3 that Brian looked at last week, there's this mention of, they shall never enter my rest, God said. 
and he was speaking about something that had happened in the past. So what does it mean to miss God's rest? What would happen in our life if we not only are going through what we're going through, but we miss God's rest? I don't want to miss God's rest. And the writer of Hebrews knew that in a group that was the size that he was writing to, it was possible that people might be operating under the wrong understanding. So he writes this to make sure not that they miss it, but that they don't miss it. When I speak on Sundays, I sometimes remind myself that I'm speaking to four groups of people in this room. And I wonder which one you are. But if you look here on the screen, here's what I try and remember. That right now in this room, some of you are genuine Christians. And you know you are. Genuine Christians who know they are. Not because they're pompous, not because they're super righteous. They just know that by humbly trusting in Jesus Christ, they are able to belong to him. He made that promise. Then I know that there are genuine Christians who are not sure they are. This, these are a group of people that I'm always concerned about because their consciences are so tender or because they, they worry all the time that they're doing enough and that kind of stuff, but they've put their trust in Jesus. They just don't live with a sense of assurance. They don't live with a sense of rest. They're always wondering. Then there's those who are not Christians and who know they are not. And if this is you, I'm so glad you're here. We exist as a church, not just for Christians, but for people who don't know Christ yet. And you may be here, and you, you know, you're not sure how all this plays out. You're not sure what you believe about Jesus or God or the Bible or any of that, but you're here. I'm glad you're here. And then there are those who are not Christians, but who think they are. This is especially difficult, because this means that people like this are walking around with a false sense of assurance. They're believing that when they stand before God one day, that they have it figured out correctly, but they actually have missed, they've missed what God has for them. They don't actually understand true Christianity. So Hebrews is written to try and help us deal with that. And I'm hoping this morning that we can look at this in such a way that you'll walk out of here not only encouraged, but you'll be able to walk out back into that same environment that can wear any of us down and you will experience this amazing, this amazing, this amazing rest that God can give us both now and forever. So I want to look at this phrase, entering God's rest, as you can see on the notes there. It's used about five times, both in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And uh, I want you to see how this is, another, instead of missing God's rest, how can we enter into God's rest? And again, this is used something from the Old Testament and the New Testament, and so I'll try and make sure that it makes sense. But uh, if you're following along, what I want you to see, it took me a while. I read this passage, I read this passage, I read this passage, and I was so excited because on Saturday, a light bulb went on. And I think I'm able to share in a way that's simple enough, no matter what your background is, of what God wants us to see. And what hit me was, is that this writer says, look, I know that you are Jewish Christians. That means that you grew up Jewish, but now you've trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. And that's put you at odds with your family. That's put you at odds with people. And we learn in chapter 10, some of these people lost their jobs. They lost their possessions. They went to prison. They were ridiculed. They experienced all kinds of difficulty 
because they trusted in Jesus Christ. They're paying a price. And he's saying, look, since you've got a Jewish background, in order to know how to find God's rest in this situation, I want to point you back to a story that you know back in the days when you went to synagogue. And I want to remind you of that story, and I want to draw a lesson out of it so you can understand what God is saying to you now. So, um, would you read verse 1 with me, because this is where chapter 4 starts, and let's read it out loud together, full voice. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Okay? So if you're following along in the notes, what I want you to see is that the writer points them back to Israel in the wilderness. The writer says to these people, the first original readers of this letter, he says, I want you to go back with me to something that actually happened with the people of God Israel in the wilderness. And I want you to see what happened there. So he begins to take them back to Numbers 13 and 14. Again, you can read that on your own. I'll try and recap it with you right now. But in order to do that, I know that some of you actually, one of the highlights of your life in our church is when I do artwork. <laughs> and so I, I, I've been trying to figure out how I can just, you know, try not to be overwhelmed, okay? But here we go. See if I can turn this here. Now, this is supposed to be a map. And uh, we're used to names like Chatham, Riverton, Rochester, Springfield. So we're going to go to the Middle East. Some of you know the Mediterranean Sea is a real place. This happened in a real place. These aren't cardboard people. These aren't flannel graph people, okay? Mediterranean Sea's up here. Red Sea's down here. This is the Sinai Peninsula. And a, a ton of stuff's going on. This black dot up here is where Jerusalem is. Some of you know there's a lot of upheaval going on right there now. But Egypt is where the people of Israel were for 430 years. They had been in captivity. Slaves. And God came to Moses and he said, I'm going to bring my people out so that I can bring them in to a new land that I'm going to give them that I swore on oath to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they started out here, we're told in the scriptures, in Ramesses, again, named after one of the pharaohs. And they made their way across the Red Sea, and they made their way down, instead of the journey that would have probably been shorter, along the Mediterranean Sea into Canaan, the land, the promised land. Instead, God led them down this way in the Sinai Peninsula, down south, and then they began to make their way up north. Now they came to an area in the desert, in the wilderness, called Kadesh Barnea. Now, I know you, you're not used to saying that. That's a little different than Rochester, but let's try it, okay? Kadesh Barnea. I want you to remember that because this is going to be an important thing of what he's trying to show in this chapter. When they got to Kadesh Barnea, God had said to them, now I'm getting you ready for you to go up into the land of Canaan, the promised land that I'm going to give you. And even though it's occupied by all their kind of nations and enemies, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to drive them out before you, and I'm going to ask you to do that. And so they were thinking about, this is big. These are fortified cities. These are impressive powers, nations. So he says at Kadesh Barnea, he said, send 12 spies to go into the land before you go in, just to see it. 
just to check it out, find out what are the cities like, what are the people like, what is the land like, what is the food like. Just go in and see it. One spy for each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they do that, and they go into Canaan for 40 days. And Moses said, by the way, while you're there, please bring back some of its fruit. It happened to be the season for grapes. They did that. They actually took a cluster of grapes. They put it on a pole, and it took two men to carry it back. I haven't seen that kind of fruit in the produce departments around here, but that's pretty impressive. In other words, it was, it was showing them, wow, this is a fruitful land I'm leading into. They come back, and they report to the entire assembly of Israel. They say, look, it's true what God said. It is a good land. And um, there's just one problem. The people that live there are huge. They're giants. And uh, even though it's a good land and stuff, there's no way we can take them. That's what 10 of the spies say. Two of the spies, one's Joshua, the other is a man named Caleb. They say, no, 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 no. Don't listen to what they're saying. God promised that he would lead us in. He didn't just bring us out to leave us. He brought us out to bring us in. Therefore, if he said that we can do this, if he says he'll go before us, we can do it. Don't listen to them. But the whole assembly of Israel listened to them. And that night, they wailed loudly in their tents, and they began to grumble against Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron laid the face down uh, before them, and they began to cry out to God. And Joshua and Caleb stood up again and said, Look, seriously, they tore their clothes. They said, You're grieving us. We can do this. Their protection is gone. God will do this. He'll help us. Come on. Forget that they're giants. He's bigger than them. We can do this. But they talked about stoning Joshua and Caleb. They said, why did God lead us all the way here only for us to die here? We, we should get a new leader and go back to Egypt rather than go up to the promised land. Now, here's what I want you to see. What the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Christians who are up against it. And let me say something. If you knew another wave of hardship or persecution or difficulties coming your way, do you know what that's like to brace yourself for that? Do you know what that's like to be a human being? Some of you do. Some of you know way better than I do. Some of you can imagine what they were feeling like. And so he says to them, look, I know some more waves may come. I know there are giants that you're up against, but here's what I want you to know. When that happens, remember what happened at Kadesh Barnea. Because Kadesh Barnea wasn't just a moment of truth for them. Kadesh Barnea is a moment of truth for you. It's a moment of truth for us. All of us that begin with the Lord are in between here and where eventually he wants to bring us into. And in those in-between places, we have choices to make of whether or not we will continue trusting the Lord or whether we will go back to not trusting the Lord. And it's a choice we've got to make. And so if you're following along in the notes, many heard, he says in verse 2, many heard God's message or God's good news about being able that he would take them in, but they wouldn't trust God enough to go in. In other words, many people heard what God was saying. I'm going to take you in. But they would not trust God to take them in. Look at how Moses capsulized Deuteronomy 
uh, in nine, Deuteronomy 9.23. Look how he capsulizes this. He says, And at Kadesh Barnea, the Lord sent you out with this command, Go up and take over the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and refused to put your trust in him or obey him. This is not a oops. This is a willful, I will not believe you. I will not trust you. I don't care if you said that I can do it. I am not going to do it. And Kadesh Barnea was a place of shame and embarrassment for them because what God said in his anger over their rebellious, stubborn refusal to trust and obey him was this. Because that's what you believed about me, you will now wander in the desert for 40 years. And no one over the age of 20 except Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, and Aaron will survive. And you, I will lead you, Joshua and Caleb, eventually into the promised land. They spent 38 years at Kadesh Barnea before they circled back and eventually made their way across the Jordan River into Canaan after 40 years. And friends, if nothing else, that's a reminder that when we refuse to trust God, it doesn't work out well. But we think we know better. Or we trust in other things to give us security. And if you're following along, notice this, that you see out to the right that Hebrews 4, 2, 6, and 11 of that line that I just gave you, and also if you want to add Hebrews 3, 18, and 19, here's what, they, here's what they're saying. At Kadesh Barnea, you can either decide to not trust me and disobey me, or you can decide to trust me, and if you trust me enough, you will obey me, because I'll help you. So what's it going to be? Are you going to disobey and not trust unbelief, or are you going to trust and obey me? Wow. And they refused to trust him, and they didn't go up. And so I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying, who are you going to be like right now? Are you going to be like Joshua and Caleb, where again, not because you're so savvy, just because you're humble enough to believe God, that what he said, he already had friends, by this time, he'd already proved to them a thousand times how faithful he was with the 10 plagues in Egypt and helping them cross the Red Sea on dry land, leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, what do you need? How much more do you need that God can do this? But they refused to trust, and they said, no, we would rather trust in our own desire for security and the way we'll pull it off. It's safer to stay in Kadesh Barnea than it is to go with God into Canaan. And they were wrong, but that's what they believed. And so you come to this third thing. You see the word rest there? Now, here's what makes this so tricky. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you, but if you read it, I said the word rest comes up 11 times. Remember I told you it wasn't until Saturday that I started catching on? Okay, here's the reason why. The word rest is mentioned like three different ways in this passage. And again, if I was Jewish, I would have probably caught on like on Thursday instead of Saturday, okay? But the point is, is that there's three ideas of rest. He mentions the rest of the promised land. Okay? So he said, they didn't enter my rest. They will not enter my rest. He meant they will not enter the promised land that I promised to them. Then he also talks about the rest of God's rest when he did creation. On the seventh day, it says he rested. So that's another rest. 
it sometimes calls rest, but here's the third rest. The rest that he's really talking about in this passage is the rest that every person, every person that trusts in Christ can experience now and forever. It's not just heaven. It's a rest you and I can know on this side of heaven if we will trust him. It's the kind of rest that can help us face a changing economy. It's the kind of rest that can help us when we're absolutely torn into knots or torn into anxiety because of things that are going south in our relationships and other things that are difficult to understand. He can give us this rest. And so if you're following along, here's the rest. The rest is perfect peace with him that's now and later. Perfect peace with him. That's now and later. What I mean by that is we will not know this perfect peace constantly, unbrokenly on this side of heaven. No. Friends, as long as there is sin, as long as there is temptation, as long as we have an enemy, as long as there are different things, there will be times when we find ourselves still swinging back and forth between rest. But what's the key when that happens? The key is to keep coming back to trusting him, knowing that one day he's going to lead us into a rest where there'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more of that kind of struggle. He will set us completely free. Praise the Lord. And that is what he promises he will do, both now and forever. Isaiah 26, 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Wow! He can help us. He can give us this kind of quality of peace, this kind of quality of rest, no matter how crazy the circumstances are. Do you believe that? Years ago, I, I read this about two paintings that were entered in a contest for peace. One of them was of a boat on a placid lake. Oh, man, it just looks so peaceful. The other one that was competing was a picture of a robin with its baby robins over the nest in the middle of a storm, but it was in the eye of a storm. Friends, do you know what the eye of the storm is? The eye of the storm is where things are absolutely calm when everything else is destructive and crazy. And what God is saying is, even in the midst of destructive and crazy, I can lead you through my son Jesus into the eye of the storm at times when you are exhausted from trying to do it yourself. I can do that. I can do that. And he wants to do that. Someone has said that the safest place in the world is the center of God's will. That means that the, it may look like everybody else thinks that's not the safest place because, man, that's scary. But when you're with Jesus in the eye of the storm, the center of God's will is the safest place you could possibly be. It's the other places that you don't want to be. And that's what he wants us to see. Wow. And notice this, if you're following along, is that God... God has set a day. Look at verses 6 through following. It says, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God in his grace again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Psalm 95, by the way, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, if it was about the promised land, God would not have spoken later about another day, about another rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters, present tense, God's rest, also rest from their works, their efforts of righteousness, all of their doings to try and get God to accept them, just as God did from his 
Would you read verse 11 with me there in the bottom of the notes? Would you read it out loud? Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Let me just remind you what Dallas Willard says because some people go, well, wait a second. How do I make every effort if I'm resting? Here's the thing. Rest does not necessarily mean inactivity. When God rested on the seventh day, he wasn't tired. And Jesus said, my father is always working just as I am working with him. What he's saying is, is that he rested in complete satisfaction that what he had done was good. And when you and I rest, we can know a goodness, a kind of quality of spirit. You and I, again, as Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Friends, to live the Christian life, anybody knows you got to give yourself. It's just you don't believe that's the source of it. You don't believe that by your efforts is what makes you right with God. You respond in effort to what he calls you to in his grace. And so that's the warning there. Don't miss it. Make sure you give yourself completely right now. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep obeying him. Keep walking forward with him because he has already promised he'll help you. Now, so God's today, if you're following along in the notes, God's today is a window of opportunity and responsibility. Here's what I love about this. God says, look, I remember what happened at Kadesh Barnea. I remember what's happened in your Kadesh Barneas. And here's what I want to tell you. There still remains a rest you can know. You may have failed, but my son didn't fail. My son obeyed me when, the, when it was absolutely up against him. He climbed up that hill. He laid his back on the cross, and he completely obeyed me. And because he did, I now offer you today rest in Jesus, not because of your own stuff. Man, what a word of hope. But here's also a word of warning. When today is done, it's too late. How long is today? I don't know. I just know this. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Don't act like you can trust God later. If you're here, you're not a Christian, and you know you're not, he's saying to you, today is the day. Trust me. Move towards me. I am moving towards you. Come on. And if you're, you know, under any kind of false pretense that the reason you're a Christian is because of your own works, give it up. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you, not what you do for Christ that makes you right with God and can bring you into rest. That's an amazing message. Notice the last line in this section is that God's word searches us and we'll give an account to him. God's word searches us and we'll give an account to him. Now, this is funny to me. I got to tell you, sometimes when I'm reading along, I try and just think about what all this means. So he's talking to him about rest, 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 rest. And then he says these two verses that if they're not enough to make your knees knock, then something's wrong with you. Okay, here it is. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes and intentions of the heart. That means it has an ability to get on the inside of you and see what's really going on there and expose and reveal what's really happened, what your real motives are. Verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Whew. Now, why does he include that? He was just talking about rest, and I was just starting to rest. Because <laughs> he knows that you and I 
can have a false sense of rest. It has to be based on the truth. There is coming a day when every one of us will give an account to God for whether or not we've really trusted him and put our confidence in him and his ability or whether we've put it in ourselves or someone else. And that day will be shown for what it is. At Kadesh Barnea, the truth came out. What they did with God's word showed whether or not they really embraced it, whether or not they really trusted him or they trusted themselves. And there is coming a day when you and I will stand before God, his word will search us, we will be seen for what we are. And he's saying, look, you don't have to dread that day, accept that that day's coming and let it drive you to someone that can stand with you on that day, Jesus Christ. And verse 14, I love this verse. Steve will talk more next week about Jesus being the high priest. But look at this, it says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven ahead of us, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith, the trust that we profess. And so, what does this do? Where does this lead us? Well, he doesn't mention Jesus' name in chapter 4 until verse 14, but here's what I think he's saying to these Jewish Christians and to us all chapter long. If you're following along, is that Jesus is greater than Joshua. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Remember who Joshua was? After Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land, Joshua did lead them in with Caleb. Joshua led the people. He was Moses' successor. But he only led them into the physical promised land. If you're following along, Joshua led Israel into the rest of a physical promised land. Joshua led Israel into the rest of a physical promised land. But, Jesus, next line, can lead us into God's now and forever rest. But Jesus can lead us into God's now and forever rest. You know what's interesting? Jesus is a form of Joshua. They're the same, they're derived from the same root word. You know what Joshua stands for? The Lord saves. And Joshua was able to lead them in a physical sense in kind of a temporary way into this. But Jesus is a better Joshua. Jesus is leading us into a better rest. You know, friends, if you had everything you could possibly dream of, if you lived in Hawaii all year long, if you had as much money and the bills were paid and all that kind of stuff, do you realize that could all be possible and you still might not have rest? And even if you did, it wouldn't last. Jesus promises a now and forever rest. He is greater than Joshua. He is supreme. He is worthy of our trust. And here's why. Because what he did to lead us into this other rest is he sacrificed himself completely and he kept his promises. If you're following along, we can rest today and every day that comes our way. We can rest in all he's promised and D O. N-E. Some of you have been around me long enough to know I love this phrase, D-O-N-E. What does it spell, friends? Done. When Jesus stood, on, when he, he stood up and walked up the hill and laid his back on the cross, those six hours that we're about to come to and remember, those six hours, he shed his blood for us and he made the payment for what was separating us from God and creating unrest between us and God. 
And at the end of his life, there on the cross, he cried out these words, it is finished. It's done. Everything that's necessary for you to be made right with God, I have done in your place. The question now is, will you trust me or will you trust your own righteousness? Will you trust me and your own smarts or will you trust in me? I've promised you that I will not fail to lead you into my God's rest. You will not miss God's rest if you trust and obey me. You won't miss it. But if you refuse to do that, you will miss it. And I don't want you to miss it either later or now. Friends, I think about this. I think about people that are trying every day to just hold it together. And my heart wants to cry out, trust the rest giver. Trust the only one. Come to him. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 11. This is powerful, powerful stuff. It's something that I think, I hope sticks with you. It says, here's what he says in one of the paraphrases. Come to me and I will give you what, friends? All of you who work so hard beneath a heavy yoke. You remember how oxen were, you know, combined together in this yoke to pull together? Wear my yoke. In other words, do life with me. For it fits perfectly, and let me teach you, for I am gentle and humble, and you shall find what, friends? Rest for your souls. And over the years, many, many people, even though the world may mock and laugh, and even though it may look counterintuitive, have discovered that by trusting their life to Jesus as Lord, they found peace in the most uncanny times. I talked to my mom last night. She used to tell a story when we were kids I've never forgotten. Five days before her 11th birthday, when she was still 10 years old, she was baptized. She woke up that morning, wasn't feeling very well, but she didn't tell her parents because she didn't want to miss that day. She was baptized, and then after the service was still not feeling well, her parents took her to a college event at the church, and she was still a little girl, and so but they noticed that she had developed a rash, and by that time, she had developed measles. She woke up the next morning, and she had a side ache. So that night, Monday night, they called the doctor, and the doctor did a house call, and he said, your daughter needs to go to the hospital. She has appendicitis. And my mom said that when she was 10, all she heard was, she has to go to the hospital. She wasn't smart enough to know that once she got to the hospital, they'd cut her open, okay? She just heard, you got to go to the hospital, and she panicked. My grandmother, who discipled my mom in such a precious way, sat down with her in her panic and said, Janie, what did you do yesterday? She said, I was baptized. She said, what did you mean when you were baptized? She said, what I was saying is, I want to trust God to be in charge of my whole life. She said, then Janie, why don't you turn to him right now and tell him that you're scared. Tell him you don't want to go to the hospital and ask him to help you. She said, I prayed. And as a 10-year-old, I understood that only by trusting Jesus to be in charge of my life could I know his rest. And I want to say the same thing to you. There is no way you and I 
can know this kind of rest until we're willing to finally humble ourselves and say, I'm done earning my way. I'm done doing it my way. I want to trust in you to take charge of my life. I don't understand it all, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go your way. Friends, I have stood at the graves of a number of people. And I want you to know that you can tell the difference in families who knew that their loved ones had trusted Christ and those who had not. There is all the difference in the world. And I don't want you to miss God's rest now or forever, but I'm just a person. God doesn't want you to miss his rest. That's why he gave us this. That's why he says, don't miss it. Please, take care. Understand what's at stake. Please. And so, as we come to the end of this, here's the question. If Jesus is supreme, if Jesus is the Lord, and you may not yet believe he is, but if he is, then here's the question. Will I trust and obey him or be like those who didn't enter? Will I trust and obey him? Friends, please know this. I hope that in no way do I sound like a guy that said, I trusted God way back there and now it's just been a cakewalk ever since. This week alone, there have been situations, relationships, mysteries that I don't understand in this world that have just been heavy on my heart. And in those moments, I have to ask myself, will I trust him? Will I continue to trust him? Will I? Because if I trust him, then I'll obey him. I will. I'll go with him. Wherever he asks me to go, I'll go up instead of go back. So some of you have heard this old hymn. We've been singing some great ones today. It says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. And to all, who will trust and obey. Then it goes this little chorus. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. You know where that came from? D.L. Moody was an evangelist who traveled the world back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And after a crusade in Brockton, Massachusetts, they had a testimony meeting of people that had been changed by Christ. One young man stood up and he didn't, it was so obvious he didn't know much about the Bible. He didn't have any kind of Christian background, but he had met Jesus. He spoke a few words and then he said these words, I'm not sure about everything, but I will trust, I'm gonna trust, and I'm gonna obey. There was a man in that meeting that was taken by those words he realized that's really what the message of Hebrews 4 in the Bible is. And so he wrote down those phrases and he handed it to a man named John Samus who wrote poems and other things and he put to words what I just sang to you and the man that wrote down those words in the meeting put it to music. Jesus says, come to me. Trust me. Trust me, I not only died on the cross and finished the work, I rose again, so now I can live by my spirit in your life. I can give you rest in the middle of whatever you're facing. Will you trust me? 
And so we're going to close by singing a song from Psalm 62. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. And you, I know, just like me, are smart enough to do more than one thing at a time. So while you're singing, I want you to think, and I want you to pray, and I want you to think about where you are with God. Is there a person? Is there a possession? Is there a decision? Is there a situation where right now, you, instead of being at rest, are kind of at odds with God, odds with others, odds with yourself, and you're not at rest, and he's saying, I'm asking you to trust me. Will you? I want to give you rest. Think about that. And do business with God.